Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, and for Lois Reitzis, thank you for being here. WABE's Mixtape Live is Sunday, and this year we're focusing on local artists who submitted entries for NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Coming up, we'll hear from the host of this year's festival, R&B artist Algebra Blissett. Also today a look at Saturday's Punk Foodie Festival, and the next installment in our Film Crew Files series. But first, if you're a fan of science fiction, you've most likely heard of the Hugo Awards. Dating back to the early 1950s, the awards are presented in connection with the World Science Fiction Convention, and winners are declared in a variety of categories, including Best Science Fiction Novel, Best Comic, Best Series, Best Fanzine, and Best Fancast, cast as in podcast. Hugo Girl, an Atlanta-based fan cast, is one of this year's nominees, and ahead of their trip to the awards ceremony... The creatives behind Hugo Girl join me now via Zoom. Haley Zapel, Amy Sally, Lori Anderson, and Kevin Anderson, welcome to City Lights. We're excited to be here. Hi, thanks for having Thank us. You. So for the unfamiliar, the podcast is hosted by Haley, Amy, and Lori. Kevin is their producer and editor. And the show aims to discuss Hugo Award-winning content from a feminist and a humorous lens, thus the name Hugo Girl. I gotta say, I feel like you struck gold with the name. Haley, will you share the origin story? Yeah, so it started about a decade ago. I was unemployed for a couple of months and I was trying to think of ways to fill my time. And I had always loved science fiction. And I was like, what if I read all these books? And this was back when, well, now everybody has a podcast, but back then everybody had a blog. So I was like, I'm gonna start a blog. I'm gonna call it something clever. So I was like, Hugo girl. And uh, I never really got around to it because I got a job fairly quickly, but the name was always bouncing around in my head. And so when we had the opportunity to create a podcast, I was like, here's the name. So Lori, in general, how does the bulk of the science fiction that you guys cover hold up to what we would consider today's feminist standards? And do you tend to find recurring problematic themes? Uh, not great in many instances to answer your <laughs> first question. And uh, yes, to answer your second question, we frequently see, I would say two main things. Number one is a complete absence of women in early and not even so early, even uh, what we would consider relatively recent works of science fiction. There Maybe there's one female character. She's a girlfriend, a sidekick, just almost kind of a, a, a blank um, or someone for the hero of the story to sort of play off of. Or in many cases, we just don't see any women at all. They might be mentioned as part of the background, but there are actually no female characters or female characters that don't have any sort of speaking role. So we see both of those actually fairly frequently and even in more recent works as well. Hugo Girl follows a solid structure and close to the start of each episode is a general summary of the book that you're going to be discussing. And it is so far from being spoiler free. So Amy, I was wondering, who do you believe your current audience is? Are you aiming for people who have already read the books that you discuss? Yeah, I think typically we're going into these episodes without worrying too much about spoilers and assuming the people have read the book. Although I will say that I've heard from 
you know, several listeners that it doesn't really matter <laughs> if they've read the book. There's usually something that is entertaining in the episodes. But yes, I think that in general, these podcasts are intended for people who have read the book and are looking to get a little more in depth with the interpretation. That makes sense. And as far as a book that many of us have read, Dune, one of the most popular science fiction books of all time and has been made a movie multiple times. I want to play a quick clip from your Dune episode. Okay, so I agree that it's not to push aside. I will read The Litany Against Fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will reign. As my therapist says, you have to feel your feelings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think, I think you can feel fear, but you just can't give in to it. You don't want to make choices based solely on fear. I, I think. think I would prefer to retitle it the consultation of fear. <laughs> yeah. Let's check yeah, in with yeah. our fear, see yeah. what it's alerting us to, have a look around, and then we can let it pass over us after we've had a chat and figured out what it's telling us we need to know. Yeah, I'm down with that. Haley, was that you reading that quote? It was. So the litany of fear is a big part of Dune. It's a very big part of why I actually like Dune. Um, it's about learning how to control negative emotions, specifically fear. And as an anxious person, you know, especially in the last few years, filled with political turmoil and a global pandemic, I find it very comforting. And in this clip, after I recite it, uh, Amy and Lori add thoughts to help give it even more nuance, um, which I thought was super cool. Well, after listening to a few of your more recent episodes, I stumbled across your Hugo adjacent episode about the HBO series Station Eleven, a series that I particularly liked. And Haley, I think you and I might be alone in that within this group. Kevin, you are featured prominently on this episode, and I'm pretty sure you have a different opinion than I do on this one. And I was wondering what led you and the team to want to go sideways to discuss not the book Station Eleven, but the HBO adaptation. Actually, there, there had been an earlier episode on the books. So this was kind of a follow-up and, uh, and contrast and, and comparison and... Yeah, I'm, I'm normally not on the episodes, uh, but I, I watched the series along with Lori, so we figured I might as well just jump on and, and it would be fun. I think it ended up adding a little bit of conflict. You know, really, I really liked the book. Um, so for me, it was kind of more a disappointment in the in the adaptation, I think. But yeah, it makes for, makes for interesting listening to have uh, have different opinions, I think. Absolutely. Was that the first time that you guys took on an adaptation of a book? This is Amy. I can answer that. We've done an episode on the Dune movie, most recent Dune movie as well. And we had an episode on the first Lord of the Rings movie. And we've done other types of works as well. We have a double episode on a cookbook um, (laughs) and a couple of other things that are sort of Hugo adjacent, most notably our forays into Moby Dick and the Dan Simmons' book, The Terror. Well, Amy, since you mentioned Lord of the Rings, I had read that your gang tends to refer to you as a general fantasy apologist. Why do you think that is? (laughs) Well, I think of everybody in the group, I'm probably the most into, (laughs) you know, swords and sorcery fantasy. Um, I think this podcast mostly started out as an appreciation for sci-fi but as we have taught Haley with her love for Star Wars even science fiction can be fantasy Um, and so I think I'm slowly winning everybody over. (laughs) Well I had heard you guys did an April Fool's episode that was Lord of the Rings based. Does anybody want to jump on and set up that episode for us? We have a clip from it I'd love to play. This is Lori. So we um, really wanted to get Haley some exposure to Lord of the Rings. And this was definitely when true crime was certainly super popular. Um, Amy and I both listened to true crime podcasts and Haley had the very funny idea to call to say my favorite Mordor as kind of a pun on the popular true crime podcast, my favorite murder. And (laughs) running with that, we decided to look at Lord of the Rings uh, from a true crime lens. And so we did our podcast sort of in the style of a true crime podcast. So we characterized it as a famous jewelry heist that had kind of permeated the popular imagination. And we did the whole episode in character as true crime podcasters and uh, as though they were 
historical events. And it was really a lot of fun and our audience seemed to really enjoy it. Here's Amy, Lori, and Haley from the Hugo Girl podcast discussing Lord of the Rings for their April Fool's Day episode. All right. We have this group of thieves, the Fellowship of the Ring. It is very Hobbit heavy. It's it like, is very Hobbit It's heavy. like half Hobbits. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, they were the ringleaders, if you if 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 you will. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, I would I would debate that because I feel like Mary and Poppins don't really bring a lot to this. Mary and Poppins. <laughs> I mean, whatever his name is, Pepin, Pe- Pe- Pepper. I don't know. His Pippin. name is Pippin. <laughs> whatever. Uh, Peregrine. If you really want to be angry. Mary <laughs> I mean, they're they're. I'm assuming they're the comic relief. Okay, so part of why this is so funny is because even though it's framed as a true crime episode, I had just watched the movie and I had so many questions and, you know, there's errors and I'm kind of like snarky about it. And, you know, Amy is like truly like knows everything about Lord of the Rings. And so when I made that little slip up, it was just hilarious. I'm just continuously, this is Amy, I'm sorry. I'm just continuously amused by how much Haley hates hobbits. It will never not be funny to me. Is it, is it the second breakfast? It's, what is it? Uh, you know, this is a very good question that I have had for her myself. So it is, it is the hairy feet. It is the bad oh. haircuts. Well. It's, it's the language. I don't know. I'm, I'm just a Hobbit hater. It's just part of my personality. I mean, the hairy feet and the bad haircuts is a really good start. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guests are the creatives behind the Hugo Girl podcast. The Atlanta-based fan cast was recently nominated for their very own Hugo Award. May I ask how you guys all met? Yeah, I think I am kind of in the middle. So I met Lori in law school in our third year of law school, and then we became very quick friends, and I've been friends for over a decade now. And I met Amy, uh, when I moved to Atlanta, although we had all attended UGA Law School, um, Amy was a little bit earlier than we were. And Amy's also from the same hometown as me, Savannah, Georgia. And then we all started hanging out together and just thick as thieves. Who came up with the idea for the podcast? I think that started with me and Haley. This is Amy. I believe that started with me and Haley. And then once we started talking about it and it seemed like something we were actually going to do in earnest, we we're like, well, obviously we need to bring Lori in. And then thank goodness. <laughs> obviously. And thanks. And thank goodness Lori is married to someone who's really into um sound and editing. <laughs> so well, speaking of Kevin, what's the most challenging part of editing the Hugo Girl podcast for you? You know, not much really. I try to keep it kind of, you know, light and conversational. And so you, you know, you can feel that uh, camaraderie come through. I don't really listen to podcasts. Uh, so when they asked me to edit it, my first thought was, well, I don't know what this should sound like. Um, <laughs> but then I realized that that's also good because I'm not really, you know, beholden to any expectations of what a podcast should sound like. So I just try to keep it light and fun. This is Lori. And of course, Kevin and I are, Kevin and I are married. And so as the person who is often sitting on the couch next to him, as he edits, I would say that the most challenging part of editing us is that we uh, tend to all talk at once. So Kevin kind of having to Mm. unbraid that crosstalk is uh, definitely challenging and something that we appreciate him for working on so patiently. Well, thank you. And this is Amy. Lori won't mention it, but I'll also tell you that Kevin is ruthless. He'll cut out things that he doesn't think people are interested in hearing. (laughs) I mean, that's what a good editor does, right? (laughs) This is Lori. That is absolutely true. When he was editing our first episode, the thing I always think of is I spent a few minutes musing about whether the first time I read Ender's Game was in the ninth grade or the 10th grade. And I distinctly remember Kevin saying, nobody cares what grade you were in when you read Ender's Game and just hitting the delete button on the segment. (laughs) Wasn't that bad? You have several benchmark segments, some of the noteworthy ones. You have the misogynist moment. You have a feminist favorite, fantastical food, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. So for each of you, tell me which segment's your favorite and why. Oh, a hundred. This is Amy. 100%. My favorite segment is boob talk. And I hope I can say that on NPR. I hope you can too. (laughs) One of the things that we talk about a lot in our podcast is how the male gaze factors into what's happening in the book. So if there are books that have female characters, are we evaluating them on their looks before we learn anything about them as a character? As we go along in the book, is there a lot of emphasis put on their bodies? Is it appropriate? Is it not? So that's all kind of covered in our boob talk segment. And I think that is frankly where we shine. (laughs) Lori, what about you? 
Well, I guess I can't give the same answer as Amy. Um, that is probably the most fun one. Um, but I do really enjoy the feminist favorite segment because I think sometimes there are things in books that are almost unintentionally feminist. And so I like looking for those little nuggets and finding moments that really speak to me as a, a woman and reader that maybe the author didn't even really realize they were doing. And I, I do think sometimes some authors kind of step backwards into <laughs> doing something that's a little accidentally feminist. So I like reading for those moments because I think it makes me a better and closer reader to, to look for those little nuggets and pick them out for the show. Haley, what about you? I love, is it Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? So Hugo award-winning books tend to be more sci-fi or more fantasy. And we've kind of turned it into our own little, basically little mini legal case. For me personally, if I don't like a book, I'll try to make it into Lord of the Rings, even if it's not like Lord of the Rings, just because I don't like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but we'll have objections. We'll have, you know, cross-examinations of each other. Um, the most recent episode we did was on the Terror, which is a supernatural horror book based on the Franklin Expedition. And I decided that it was Star Wars because it's in the snowy Arctic. So I was like, well, this is obviously Hoth from Empire Strikes Back. There's a monster that's <laughs> like a wampa. But there was other arguments to be made. I think uh, Amy said that it was Lord of the Rings, which, you know, honestly. Correction. Tracks, so. Amy said it was Star Trek. <laughs> this is Lori. The fun thing about that category is there are really... No rules, no metrics. It's just sort of whatever we feel like uh, shouting at each other in the moment. So anything goes. It could be Star Trek, even though that nobody asked if it was Star Trek. And Kevin, what about you? Um, I, I don't know if it's the most fun, but I like that there's a did you like this book segment at the end, which was not an, an original uh, segment, but I think we realized over time that there are a lot of books that were enjoyable and good to read, but still had issues or problems or things you could nitpick. And when you spend, you know, an hour going over all these issues, it makes it seem like it's a terrible book. So kind of mm -hmm. recentering it on despite all of these issues, did you still enjoy this? I, I think that's important. Absolutely. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that a good percentage of your audience is male, which I think is wonderful. Can you tell me a little more about your followers and the people who have helped you along the way? Yeah, this is Amy. We actually are constantly discussing how we managed to find all of the nice men on the internet. <laughs> we have mm -hmm. a really wonderful group of people that we interact with. And we have been very lucky to be supported from almost the very beginning by especially Seth at the podcast Who Goes There. He was very instrumental in helping us sort of get our little podcast out to the world. And the folks over at Androids and Assets, another science fiction podcast, they were very helpful in getting our name out. And we've all sort of been on each other's podcasts. And, and we're very, very grateful to them and all of their help. Fantastic. Congratulations on being nominated for the Hugo Award. Have any of y'all ever attended the ceremony before? Yes, this is Lori. Kevin and I attended in person last year. We went just to go and have fun. So it's normally in August or September each year and hosted in a different city. Um, because of COVID, they were hoping to be able to do it in person. And so it was pushed back to December and they were able to hold it in person and it was in DC. So we figured um, it was pretty close to us, wouldn't be too much of an ordeal for us to travel there. Um, and we are big fans and attendees of Dragon Con. So with it being moved to December, it didn't conflict with Dragon Con as it often would. Right. It was so nice meeting people. Um, really fun to meet uh, members of the Hugo community that we've gotten to know over social media over the past couple of years. So we are super excited to be going back this year. And of course, especially to be going back as finalists. Haley Zapel, Amy Sally, Lori Anderson, and Kevin Anderson from the Atlanta-based Hugo Girl podcast. They've recently been nominated for a Hugo Award in the Best Fan Cast category, and we sincerely wish them the best of luck at the award ceremony. More information about Hugo Girl is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. WABE's Mixtape Live is happening this Sunday at Monday Night Garage. And coming up, we'll hear from the host of the music festival, R&B artist Algebra Blissett. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. The One Day Music Festival, WABE's Mixtape Live, is back again for the second annual performance. The concert is this Sunday, June 26th, and features five local artists who submitted entries for NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Atlanta-based R&B artist Algebra Blissett is hosting the festival, which takes place at Monday Night Garage. Blissett recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis via Zoom, and before they got into WABE's mixtape live, they discussed the musician's new single with R&B artist Anthony David. The single is a cover of BB and CC Winans' song Heaven, and Blissett began by explaining the context of the song. I'm a product of my environment. So I'm what you call, I guess, an 80s baby. <laughs> and that was R&B to me. And um, they were big. I grew up in a gospel household, but they were the group that pretty much joined R&B and gospel together. So it was just key. It was the song that I could get away with performing. I, I danced to that song when I was in school and it was the song that my mom didn't mind hearing over and over. <laughs> oh, so sweet. when when Anthony called with the idea, I said absolutely. So he's very big on songs that stand the test of time and that have a great message and that pretty much bring people together because um, that's pretty much all we're here to do is to make sure we love on each other. Mm, amen. We're here, yeah. It's what I live for A place where love will never cease Willing to die for Heaven is where I want to be It's what I live for A place where love Talk about the context of heaven. Yes. So primarily the, the the gospel orientation of the song, it pretty much talks about the beauty of the afterlife with having no more worries, no more no more pain, no more sorrows. Um, for I do believe if I'm able to speak for Anthony, we can have heaven on earth. We can have um, the luxury of having love and spend, we're, we're all here for limited time. So the time that we do have here together, we have the, we actually have the audacity to make it very heavenly. So I think the context for the four of us could be the same, but I know for us, instead of talking about going home to glory, if you will, it's really about manifesting that heaven and that happiness here on life because we only have so much time. Hmm. This version is stripped down and more relaxed than the original. How did you and Anthony arrive at this sweet, melodic interpretation? Well, for the, the 80s version of that, that was during a time where it was always about, you know, a, a step, a beat, a step, something that you can dance to and um, sh shrug your shoulder pads to at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this time we... Um, collaborated with Eddie Stokes, who's well known. He's an amazing producer. Um, and he he's always been, he always gives eargasms with songs that were definitely 
put in a time machine. So when you hear them, you know they came from the 80s, but he's able to remix these songs to give you whatever um, you need from the lyrics. So he's very good at um, taking the lyrics from a song and the music that's very well known, separating the two and then creating two different masterpieces. With this particular song, he also did a, an a piano remix that's a, um, an African drum and beat sound and it's amazing. So we do have both versions, the melodic, slow, not necessarily slow down, but not so many instruments, not too, not overly produced. And then we have a dance version of the song. And I hope you get a chance to hear it. It, it makes you want to shrug those shoulders again. I tell you that. <laughs> With or without the bath. <laughs> exactly. You have worked together before on the song Forevermore, which has become a staple at many wedding ceremonies and receptions. The song also peaked at number two on Billboard's adult R&B airplay chart in May of 2011. Algebra, how does it feel to know you produced a wedding anthem? I didn't know. I didn't know at the time. <laughs> Anthony will tell you he knew right off the bat that it was going to be a great song. I was just disturbed that he woke me up at eight o'clock in the morning. Like, what, why, why are you calling me? So I didn't know until the listeners got a hold of it and the request came in. You know, you, you get emails and, and fan mail saying how this was our first dance. This was our wedding song. This was the song that I thought of when I proposed to my wife. So I didn't know at the time, but as the years went on, I was so humbled and so grateful that something came from us that could completely change the trajectory of someone's life, all with music. Now let's talk about this Sunday's WABE Mixtape Live. Can you walk us through some of the artists? I'll tell you something beautiful about hosting. There's always a surprise. It's always surprising to never to have met an artist, but you know their name because you have to learn things about them. And then when you finally meet them and hear the music that they have to display for you and the crowd, it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, I know we have about five artists that it's um, Amelia, Andy, uh, Dead Cassettes, and it's a couple of more. Um, and, and all of these are local artists that have come to present their best works and be on a platform that every musician around the world is trying to be on. Algebra, in addition yes. to your great achievements as a musician. I read you have also created vegan and cruelty-free lipsticks and mascaras. Why did you want to create a cosmetic line? Great question, Lois. I don't get asked that a lot. Um, I have to say it was an experience of mine as a performer, getting my makeup done with colors that I was not comfortable wearing. However, the makeup artist felt that it was beautiful on me. And um, I got to the point to where I needed a red for me. It all started with one red lipstick. And um, I found a red through another um, MUA of mine. And he said, Algebra, people are always asking you where you get your red lipstick. I said, yeah, they do. He said, well, you should start your online. I said, I have no idea of how to do that. He said, I have my own line of makeup. Whenever you're ready to do it, whenever you're ready, I'm here for you. So we did the research for about a year. And I started out with five colors. It was red, green, 
nude, burgundy, and a sheer shimmer clear gloss. And this is before the pandemic. I started off with five colors and I came up with the logo. I knew what ingredients I wanted and the rest is history. Of course, three or four months later, we went into a pandemic and I said, Lord, how am I going to sell lipstick now? We can't even <laughs> go outside. I have all of this product. What's going to happen? And lo and behold, about eight to 10 months later, I landed real estate in Neiman Marcus. You know, we got the lipsticks in Neiman Marcus. We were able to start going back outside. We had to wear masks. And this is when I discovered that they were mask proof as well. And I knew nothing about it. Who knew we would have to wear masks? I just wanted a lipstick that didn't come off on the microphone or my beautiful big teeth. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it stayed on and mask proof is a word now. So they are vegan, animal cruelty free, mask proof, very vibrant, vibrant colors for every type of lip color. And also because we as women, we have different shapes of lips. Some are full, some are thinner. And these colors show through all of that. Um, Some of us have darker lips and lighter lips. Perfect for that. Um, And that's how it started. And earlier this year, um, I decided, let's dive into the things that I wear. I wear mascara as well as fake lashes. But when I don't wear fake lashes, I love putting on mascara. So mascara and lipstick, who knows what's next? Oh, Algebra, you are wondrous. I've just loved our conversation. (laughs) Congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting WABE Mixtape Live. I'm so looking forward to it. I cannot wait. I'm just really excited to see artists being excited about what they do. This industry is very hard. You know, there's... It looks luxurious, but it's a lot of work. So I love meeting people that love the work. And I think WAVE has the opportunity to present these artists on this amazing platform of theirs. And who, who knows, like this, this could be our next superstar on another level because there are already superstars walking on this stage. R&B artist Algebra Blissett. She's hosting WABE's Mixtape Live at Monday Night Garage this Sunday from 12 to 5 p.m. More information about the music festival is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time for our series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from some of the many Atlantans that help keep our city's film industry thriving. My name is Alexis Jackson. I live in Old Forford, and I have worked in the film industry in some capacity since 2007. Wow, so 15 years, that's crazy. Um, And then specifically as a director of photography for about seven to eight years. I have been interested in stories and wanting to be a storyteller since I was very, very small. I was a voracious reader when I was younger and also a consumer of visual media, film, etc. And I think that those things together are probably what really seeded that in me. And so as soon as I was old enough to form sentences, I was writing finger quote novels, and I'm putting in quotes because of course there were novels written by a you know, six-year-old, but I would write novels and I would make my family members read them. And when I would play with toys, I always wanted it to be a TV show or a soap opera or some long running story where there were specific characters that carried over you know, throughout And then ultimately that storytelling urge within me led me to film, particularly through my love of music videos, which I used to watch constantly on, you know, MTV, BET, VH1, etc. And so when I was a kid, I was like, that's what I want to do when I get older. I want to make music videos, Uh, you know, and so that was sort of the impetus for me wanting to go to film school later in life. And I stuck with it. Of course, by the time I graduated from film school, music videos and, you know, the music industry as a whole had changed significantly. So making a living as a music video director was not quite the realistic dream that it was when I was a child. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, throughout film school, I found myself saying often that I wanted to be a music video director and a cinematographer. And so that stuck with me. I took a little bit of a roundabout way after film school, but ultimately found my way back to what what I said that I wanted to do. 
you know, I don't really have a normal day per se. And I think that that's one of the things that I love the most about my career or the thing that fits my personality (laughs) in a lot of ways, because I think I would get bored if I was doing the same thing day in, day out. You know, it's always something new. It's solving similar problems, but in a different scenario, in a different way. And so depending on whether I'm in pre-production or production or post, whether I'm the director of photography on a project or if I'm camera operating for another DP, which I do also do occasionally, I could be doing something entirely different on a different day. So for example, if I'm in pre-production for a narrative film and I'm the director of photography, that might look like having meetings with the director or producer, you know, in person or via Zoom, talking about the visual aesthetic that we're ultimately going for that could be looking at photography references or music references that fit a certain mood that the director is going for or watching a film that the director says oh I loved the vibe of this or I kind of want it to look like this and if it's a movie that I haven't seen before even if I have seen it before just to refresh my memory maybe I'm watching a movie to um, prepare or sort of get into the mindset of what we're doing for this particular film so that could be a normal workday for me in pre-production. I could also during pre-production, I could be testing lenses or doing research on lenses or research on filters that I want to use. During production, I'll be on set. We definitely work some long, long hours, but you know, that could be on location in Kansas, or it could be a studio set in Los Angeles or New York. And like I said, ultimately, it's sort of taking solutions that I've already worked through and applying them to new scenarios, kind of extrapolating that into whatever is needed at that time. But like I said, there's always some variety. Those are all (laughs) parts of a normal day for me. I love creating beautiful images and playing with light or camera movement to create beautiful images, but also to ultimately serve the story and use that as a storytelling device. I would say that's really my favorite part. I often say that I feel that being a director of photography is sort of a marriage of the technical and the creative or using the technical knowledge that you have about lighting, about camera bodies, about all of the the technical aspects of filmmaking, and then taking that and using that knowledge to ultimately tell a story because those two things are important. There are so many things that are unique to our particular medium of visual imagery that we have these devices that we can use to tell a story that don't exist in other mediums. You know, for example, with books, I love books and they can be super descriptive and they can help you imagine this world that the author is creating, but you don't get that ability to throw light on a specific thing that you want the viewer to look at or do a rack focus from the foreground to the background to show that something's important or to subtly shift the light maybe and make it a little bit darker at a key plot moment within the film to influence the way that the audience feels or let them know that something has changed watching other people watch it after it's finished and seeing them laugh at a moment or gasp at a moment or you know tear up during a moment it shows that we've used those storytelling devices effectively and particularly if it you know was a story that I was invested in which I tend to only work on stories that I'm invested in knowing that those things that we sort of imagined and envisioned and took from a script to being on screen and we did it effectively and made the audience feel this emotion that we were going for. I would say that that's probably my my most favorite part of what I do. I would say that the hardest part of my job, and I love what I do, but I would say that the hardest part of my job is probably the long hours and the film industry, I think is particularly known for having long hours. And sometimes that can be a strain on relationships, friendships, also your other hobbies, you know, things that you enjoy doing outside of work that you may not have as much time to do because you're just trying to sleep and do it all over again the next day. I would say particularly for relationships with people or friendships with people, family relationships with people that don't work in the film industry and sometimes don't understand that our inability to tell you when we're available for something or what time we're going to get off is not in any way indicative of how we feel about the relationship or how important you are to us. It's just sometimes our schedule is so crazy that we just 
you know, we're just sort of swept up in the tide of it and we don't know exactly what we're going to land on shore. <laughs> so, so yeah, like I said, I love what I do, but sometimes it can be hard to work as much as we do and be away from the people that we love. And sometimes we don't get nearly enough sleep. My favorite production that I've worked on in terms of the one that was probably most important to my career thus far is the the short film that I was the director of photography on for Vogue magazine called Why the Sun and Moon Live in the Sky featuring uh, Chloe and Hallie and the the short film lives on the Vogue website and they also pulled stills from the film and put them in the March 2021 issue of the magazine so I got a photo credit in Vogue which was pretty awesome and I'm really happy with that work because I feel like it looks really pretty also it meant a lot to me to do that work for such an esteemed publication another piece that I did that wasn't necessarily like the biggest production that I've done but I felt like the subject matter was really important and I really enjoyed working on it. it was a, a short film that I did called Spin that without, I don't want to spoil it, it's actually starting its festival run soon, but it relates to when certain boundaries are crossed in the context of a relationship. I love working on stories that I feel like are really powerful or inspire difficult conversations because I feel like that's also a really important part of art and of media. I actually moved to Atlanta from Detroit, particularly because I was getting hired for like industry stuff down here. And I just simply don't believe that I would be where I am currently in terms of what I feel like I've accomplished or the career strides that I've made if I had not moved to Atlanta. The people are just unmatched than the community that they've fostered. Also, I am an adjunct professor at Spelman College where I teach cinematography and being at Spelman, which, you know, for anyone who's not familiar, is an all-women uh, HBCU and being there with other, you know, like young Black women filmmakers. And again, this is something that is specific to it to Atlanta. Uh, you know, being able to work with creatives that, you know, look like me and have been historically excluded from making the same strides in the industry. You know, all of those things are, are really important to me from a career standpoint. And those are all things that I would not have accomplished without being in the city of Atlanta. Director of Photography, Alexis Jackson, and our series, Film Crew Files. More information about Jackson and her work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, punk foodie founder Sam Fleming shares his love for our city's underground food scene. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. For those who are into the underground food scene in Atlanta, Punk Foodie has become a helpful destination to learn about upcoming pop-up dining events. The newsletter and Instagram account were created by Sam Fleming. And tomorrow, Saturday, June 25th, Punk Foodie is having their first Punk Foodie Festival. It's being hosted by Scafflaw Brewery on the west side. City Lights contributor and WABE reporter Emil Moffat recently caught up with Fleming and began by asking how the idea for Punk Foodie originated. Well, two things. First, I love food. And when I moved to Atlanta a few years ago, I had a hard time finding food trucks and pop-up events, which I've just, I get really excited about. And the second thing in my previous life, I was in a, a social media research company. And so for Punk Foodie, I track a lot of content on social media about pop-up and food truck events and publish that on a calendar and on an Instagram account. I grew up a music fan. Frankly speaking, not so much punk, a little bit of it, but more like alternative music, uh, REM, uh, the Pixies, and so on. And so there was always this sort of underground music scene that existed. They played what they loved. They played with their heart uh, and played with passion. And then they found success. And I just see the underground dining scene uh, to be very, very similar. 
And punk's an attitude, right? Not a genre. There you go. <laughs> you got it. I understand you kind of traveled the world in your previous occupation. Talk a little bit about how that shaped your love of food and your love of different cuisines. Yeah. I mean, I was 25 years in Asia after growing up in Alabama. And growing up in Alabama in the 70s and 80s, not much variety of food. And moving to Asia, just so much food, so much different types of food. And while there, I also got to travel really around the world. And just getting exposed to the variety and I would say even passion for food, for preparing food and eating food, I would say it kind of just, it means more in Asia. Um, And that really influenced me. So it made me want to seek out different types of food, different types of dining experiences. And that's essentially what Punk Foodie is all about. And the Punk Foodie uh, Festival, which we have this weekend, uh, is all about getting exposure to kind of different kinds of food that you may not have thought to eat or even had a chance to eat. And how would you describe the underground food scene here in Atlanta? Vibrant. Um, Not always easy to find, um, and that's why we set up the Punk Foodie platform, Uh, but extremely vibrant, um, filled with passionate chefs who are authentic. And when I say authentic, it's not necessarily authentic cuisine for a particular region, which obviously it can be and often is, but it's really authentic to that chef and their experience and their experience of food growing up or just everyday life and who they are as, you know, it's just part of their identity. And the the experience of someone who's doing a pop-up food event or uh, with a food truck Describe how they kind of go about things differently than uh, an established uh, brick-and-mortar restaurant. Well, I mean, just thinking of putting the context of pop-up or just put that, that's the broader category, it's ephemeral, right? It's here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, It's not always on a set schedule, although there might be residencies. They often, especially pop-ups, will often happen at established restaurants, uh, where there's a kitchen or even if there's not a kitchen, a venue where people traditionally like to come try different things, right? So, but I think it's ephemeral, sometimes a bit chaotic, but that's just because sometimes you don't know how many people are going to come, right? But that can also be exciting as well. And I understand sometimes it can also be a launching pad for something bigger when you start with these pop-ups. Absolutely. Some of the hottest restaurants or uh, newest restaurants in Atlanta like you know, Lazy Betty was was a pop up, uh, but it's a place where chefs can build an audience. Um, they can hone their craft. They can test food out. They build a brand, and so when they look to sign that lease, they're not an unknown quantity. They've actually, you know, they've they've got a customer base and they've got a strong reputation. So give us a sense of what the fest will be like on Saturday. We've got cuisines from all over the world. We've got Eastern European. Uh, we've got Korean American. We've got homestyle Vietnamese. We've got Asian. Really trying to reflect the underground scene. We've got burgers, but, you know, very creative take on burgers. And these chefs reflect the creativity and, as again, the authenticity, authentic to who they are and where they're coming from. Um, that's all cooked into the food with heart and soul. And it will be um, really exciting and a really unique experience. I wanted to ask about Flavor Forward, an organization here in Atlanta that uh, fights food insecurity. Describe a little bit about uh, what you all do for, for that organization. Sure. So Flavor Forward is sort of powered by Punk Foodie, something that was started by myself and my uh, son, who's a rising junior in high school. And with Punk Foodie, we have so many connections, know so many folks who cook great food, right? And you know, we got to know about Free 99 Fridge, which are community fridges all over town that people will donate food to. And we just thought it would be a great idea uh, to have chefs focus on what they do the best, which is cook, right? We'll take care of the ingredients, so reimburse for the ingredients. We'll take care of the containers. We'll pack it up. We'll label it and we deliver it. So it just makes it very easy for chefs to uh, make an impact on this problem. Chefs, I find, are very civically engaged uh, and want to help. They just sometimes struggle with time, 
right? And so we try to make it as frictionless as possible for them. And by the way, the Punk Foodie Fest, um, part of what we're doing with that is in addition to bringing awareness to uh, the pop-up scene in Atlanta, we're also bringing awareness to Flavor Forward. And one of the things we're doing is we've launched a lucky draw where if you donate online, then you have a chance or maybe multiple chances to win lots of punk foodie style prizes. So lots of pop-ups have offered uh, their food as, as a prize, as well as more established uh, restaurants. Punk foodie founder Sam Fleming speaking with City Lights contributor and WABE reporter Emil Moffat. The Punk Foodie Festival is tomorrow, Saturday, June 25th at Scafflaw Brewery on the West Side. The festival is coordinated to raise money via the efforts of Flavor Forward. The organization works with people in the restaurant industry and high school students to prepare and deliver meals to address food insecurity in Atlanta. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., join us for a Stranger Things theme show. We'll talk to Atlanta actor Regina Ting Chen about her role as Hawkins High School's guidance counselor. Plus, we'll hear from a few of our city's film crew professionals and learn how they contributed to the Netflix hit show. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Really looking forward to seeing everyone out at Monday Night Garage this Sunday for WABE Mixtape Live. We're looking forward to a day of music and community and showcasing the local musicians who competed in NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.